Hi, welcome to Interviews Podcast. I am passionate about business. I used to run businesses for others before launching my own. And I have always asked myself one key question. What is the secret recipe to properly structure and successfully run a business? So I am on a quest to find out through insightful conversations with entrepreneurs all around the world. Follow me on my journey to crack the entrepreneurship code. Interviews is sponsored by Bertoli Digital, a Wix website agency built for startups, individuals and SMEs. Bertoli Digital is also Finland's first certified Wix expert and Wix partner agency. 1% of all the agency's project revenue go to Global Footprint Network to help change how the world manages its natural resources and respond to climate change. If you want to know more, www.bertolidigital.com or contact at bertolidigital.com. This is Interviews. Today, I am with Tom Hayton, Creative Director, Consultant and Speaker based between the UK and Germany. Hey, Tom, thank you very much to be a guest on my podcast. Thanks, Laurent. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So please tell us a little bit about your journey. To understand my journey, I really need to talk about my education. When I was growing up, I was very interested in both the arts and the sciences. And I got to my A-level time in the UK and mm-hmm. I studied both the arts and the sciences to quite a high level. And it was very difficult for me to decide what I wanted to study at university because I really liked doing mathematics and I really liked doing languages and I really liked doing physics and lots of different things. Um, I eventually settled on philosophy Okay. <laughs> now, a lot, of people think that, <laughs> a lot of people think that philosophy is a bit of a joke subject. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. It's actually fundamental to pretty much any serious intellectual study because philosophy begins by asking very basic questions. Mm-hmm. And I found that during my philosophical studies, I was able to satisfy both my interest in the arts and my interest in the sciences, specifically mathematics. I was able to continue studying mathematics all the way through my degree. Um, Philosophy and mathematics are very closely related, especially when it comes to mathematical logic. Mm. So that was all very interesting. But then I graduated and had absolutely no idea what I was going to do next. (laughs) And, and really, my journey, uh, my career journey, has been about finding ways to apply my ability to think both analytically and creatively, because I think that's actually probably my biggest strength. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me a while to figure that out. And before I figured it out, I went off to Japan. And I went to Japan because I'd always had an interest in Japanese culture and specifically in judo. 
Mm. I've been doing judo my whole life. And I thought, well, I'm not really sure what I want to do work-wise, but I know that I'm really interested in judo. I've got nothing to lose. I have no responsibilities. So I may as well go to Japan now. So if I went, I got a teaching job while I was there mm. and had a very interesting time. Uh, I got my black belt in judo while I was out there and learned Japanese and also developed an interest in photography and began to think that perhaps that could be um, my, my calling. Mm. Um, but obviously you don't become a professional photographer overnight. So I took another teaching job in Malaysia with mm. the British council, which is an organized, the UK's organization for educational and cultural relations. Right. And that was a very interesting job. I took a postgraduate teaching diploma while I was there uh, and continued to build a photography business uh, on the side. Um, eventually got to a point where I quit the day job and I became a fully fledged professional photographer. I moved back to Europe uh, and <laughs> I was all set when unfortunately the global financial crisis kicked in. Right. Um, located myself in Spain and Spain was particularly hard hit by... So that was back in 2008 then? That was 2008, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and yeah, Spain was hit pretty hard. Um, so I realized that I needed, to, if I was going to be successful, I needed to have a very international approach and not focus too much on the local market. Mm. So I was taking every opportunity I could to get on a cheap flight or jump on a bus or a train and go and do jobs in Paris or London or, or, or wherever. Now this, this was, you know, it was a tough, tough time. Um, and, uh, I came very close to going out of business. I ran out of money. Um, I made a lot of silly mistakes from a business perspective. Like what? But, uh, maybe, sorry. Like what? Oh, you name it. <laughs> 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 well, uh, not, not budgeting properly, uh, assuming that what had worked for me in the Asian market would transfer to Europe, yes. um, over, overconfidence, um, not, uh, um, not, um, dividing um, my uh, not spending enough energies on developing it as a business. Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking, I think, a little bit too much like an artist, especially in the early days. Um, but so uh, the harsh realities, the harsh financial realities of the global financial crisis taught me how to be a lot more disciplined um, and a lot more strategic. And, and I, I made it through, I'm happy to say. Mm. Um, but what I began to realize is that I kind of swung a bit too far in the creative direction. Um, mm. As I mentioned earlier, I had a background in both um, hardcore analytical studies and also more, um, more uh, humanities-related studies with the philosophy and languages and so on. Yeah. And that side of my brain, that analytical side of my brain, was getting a bit bored. Uh, and it was around that time that I discovered the tech industry and I... I realized that a lot of tech businesses needed help in telling their stories in a more creative and engaging way. And I thought, well, I can understand what they're doing um, from, a, from a, a kind of technical perspective. And I think it can help them to bridge that gap uh, by applying my creative skills so that they can communicate what they're doing to the rest of the world and to people mm. who maybe not 
non-specialists. My experience as a teacher and trainer also helped uh, there as well. So, so basically that was the beginnings of my, of my business as it currently stands. And over the years I've added more bits to it mm. um, and my business has become more of a fully fledged digital media business. Um, with a cons- heavy consulting element as well, because over the years, obviously, gained a lot of industry knowledge, and I, I began to understand that that was actually as valuable, if not more valuable, than the creative. So I began to offer that as a as a standalone service as well. Right. So, so that, in a uh, in a nutshell, is my journey over the last uh, well twenty years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I've been I've been on my own now for twelve years. That was when I first okay. set out. Um, well, we're going to talk about that a little bit a little bit further. Uh, you yeah. being being on your own for such a long time. But first, tell me what are you very good at? As I've already suggested, I think my real strength is is an ability to think both analytically and creatively. Mm. Uh, most people tend to be more one or the other but I'm really very comfortable dealing with very technical stuff and also very comfortable dealing with very creative stuff. Mm. And I can speak both languages and that skill set is very useful in tech um, because people tend to be more one, one or the other. Um, right. So if I sit down with a client and they start talking to me in very uh, complex terms about, um, blockchain-based business or uh, cybersecurity or SDKs or APIs Mm. and all of this sort of thing, um, then I can speak that language and then translate that into a a visual language or another kind of creative language that non-specialists can also understand. Mm. Um, So really, it's, it's a kind of combination of analytical thinking creative thinking and teaching. Mm. So those, those really are the pillars of my, the main pillars of my skill set. It's, it's, it's interesting because you're talking about the tech industry, which I guess is not for complex words that mm-hmm. not a lot of people understand, but I see that with my client also based with my, my own experience. It's mm-hmm. often very difficult to talk about what you do. Yeah. Why, why is that, do you think? <laughs> People make it too complicated. Right. That, that would be my simple answer. Mm. And the other mistake that they make is, is that they, they, they tell the story from their perspective rather than the, from the perspective of, of an outsider. Mm. So the reasons why you set up your business are probably not the same reasons why an outsider would be interested in it. I mean, maybe, I mean, there's going to be some sort of crossover somewhere, but your motivations are probably different to theirs. And if you sat there writing code for the last 18 months, um, an outsider hasn't had that experience. And so you have to find a way of making your story relevant to their story. And right. that can be quite difficult. But the right. basic problem is that people tend to make it too complicated. Right. Yeah. So, one, so 
simplify, simplify, simplify the KISS rule, keep it short and simple, or AKA keep it, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be one advice. Second advice, as you say, is put yourself in your audience shoes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, because um, this, is some, this is something I see, for example, in, in, in sales a lot, is that a lot of salespeople you know, tend to talk about themselves and about their pro product instead of asking questions and understanding their audience and their needs. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, selling should always begin with getting to understand your customer. Mm. Selling is not. This, the, the, the cliched understanding of sales is that it's about pushing stuff on people. That's mm. not selling. Well, it's not professional selling anyway. Professional selling involves getting an understanding of what your customer's life is like. Mm. What are their hopes, fears, problems, aspirations? How do they see themselves? And you can't know that without actually engaging with them. Mm -hmm. And that connects to what we were just talking about in terms yeah. of explaining your business. If you have never spoken to, <laughs> if you've never spoken to your customers properly and got to understand what their lives are like, then when you try to explain your business, the best you can hope for is that they'll go, huh, okay, cool. And they're just being polite and are actually really interested. <laughs> okay. So what you're I saying mean, is that with the sales point, you yeah. can understand whether they are actually really interested if they start asking you follow up questions. Yes. So when it comes to storytelling, what you're saying is that, well, if you want to understand what you do and how to explain mm -hmm. it, just ask your customers, they will tell you. <laughs> well, they should be able to tell you. Yeah. If they can't, then, you, then there's a problem somewhere. Of course. So how do you build a good story? Or what makes a good story? A story that resonates with people? That's a really good question. There are quite a few bits and pieces to it, but I think the most important thing is tension. Tension. Tension, yeah. Yeah, so if I may quote a little yep. bit of philosophy here. Um, more than 2,000 years ago, Aristotle analyzed what makes a good story, and he said that it was the one of the key features is the tension between the potential for what can be mm -hmm. and what is. Mm. So if you are talking about an exciting new piece of technology, why is it exciting? Because we're at a particular place now and the technology is going to take us somewhere else. So it's the mm. tension between where we're at now and the potential for what can be realized that creates the excitement about it. Mm. And you can see this manifested across the board in just about any great story that you can think of. Um, one example that I like to, to give, even though I don't particularly like the film, is, is Titanic. If you watch that film, there is tension in absolutely every single scene. Mm. 
Tension, 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 tension. Will he survive? Will he not? When he goes back down into the flooding boat, is he going to drown? Etc. Etc. So every single scene has tension in it. Right. Um, another example from the world of technology. If you look at Steve Jobs when he first presented the iPad, he gave a brief history of portable computing. Mm. And he talked about the laptop and the smartphone. And he posed the question to the audience. We've been asking whether there's a device that, ha- that sits somewhere between the laptop and the smartphone. Could there be a device that is somewhere in between those two devices, which is better than both of them at certain things. So again, he's creating tension. The audience is wondering, wow, what would that be like? And I recommend to anyone who hasn't seen that presentation, they should watch it because it's a masterful application of tension. Okay. Um, I think another key aspect of a powerful story is relatability. So relatability. Relatability, yeah. So broadly speaking, Relatability means that you've got characters and situations that your audience can relate to from their own personal experience. So, so like helping them uh, to help them conceptualize or imagine what it could be. If, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, right. exactly. Because they will be able to draw upon their own experience mm. when they listen to the story. Mm. If it's a completely hypothetical character, called Bob, who's maybe, I don't know, he's a software engineer and he, um, I don't know, he speaks 15 languages and he's an ultra marathon runner and he um, uh, lives in the middle of Siberia. Well, yeah, okay. There might be some people who can relate to that character, but probably not so many. Mm -hmm. So when you, Telling the story, you need to think, okay, again, what kind of lives do my audience live? And if your character has a very different life to their lives, then you need to have some human trait that they can relate to. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe your main character is sick. Maybe he's developed type 2 diabetes or something like that. That's something that most people can understand and relate to because there's no people who, who have type 2 diabetes. Right, yeah. When we prepared the, uh, this interview, you, you mentioned something that really stick with me. You said that we are all storytellers, and I quote, we don't exercise our story, storytelling muscle enough. Yeah. Can you, can you explain more about this storytelling muscle? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, what do I mean when I say we're all storytellers? Well, what what I mean by that is that we evolved as storytellers Mm. and storytelling was essential for our survival as hunter-gatherers because we could explain to each other where where the food was or what kind of dangers to watch out for. Um, And uh, we could pass wisdom down through the generations by telling Mm. stories. So we're all hardwired to respond to stories. And... When we meet up with our friends, what do we do? We tend to tell stories. Mm. So we all do it to one extent or another. 
but as business people telling stories for um, investment pitches or telling stories to get people interested in your business, that's a higher level of skill, mm. right? So if you compare it to running, everybody who's able, able-bodied can run at least for a few meters. Mm-hmm. There's a difference being able to run a few meters and being able to run for miles and miles and miles. Yeah. So it's similar with storytelling. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And it's not rocket science. There are principles that you can follow which will make you a better storyteller. It makes, it makes sense. Yeah. It's just I like if you go running every day, you're going to get better at running. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to come back to uh, your experience as an entrepreneur. So mm-hmm. you are still a business of one after, I think you said, uh, 12 years. Yeah. Why is that? Why not setting a, a company with you know, staff, etc.? Ah, okay. Well, to be clear, I do have a company. Yes. I'm just the only, I'm just the only employee. Yeah. <laughs> And I never really work alone uh, unless I'm doing something that's very uh, one-to-one or one-to-many. Like if I'm, if I'm giving a talk, that's just me. Or if I'm writing an article, that's just me. Mm. Um, but when I'm working on commercial projects, usually it's me plus other people. So the way that I've structured my business is that over the years, I've built up a very big international network mm. of specialists. And so when I need, for example, someone who's an expert in the UX, then I know where to find them. Mm. or if I need a graphic designer or a programmer or whatever it may be, I know where to find them. And um, that offers many advantages. It means that I can build very bespoke teams. Right. And it also means that, uh, so what do I mean by bespoke team? I mean that this team is very highly specialized for the project. But I don't have to have all of these people on payroll. Right. So you have no overhead costs. They're relatively low, yeah. Mm. And I can pass some of those efficiencies on to my clients. Mm. Um, Yeah, so that's one advantage. Um, And the other advantage, well, we've already covered it, is is that it keeps overhead low. Um, Mm. Because if I were to try to... Um, to offer the degree of specialization that I can offer with everybody on payroll, that it'd be a lot more expensive. Yeah. Um, and then the other point is that I don't particularly want to run uh, a business like that. Um, running a business like this offers a great deal of flexibility. Mm. And I like that. So I don't particularly see any reason to change it. But aren't you limited when it comes to uh, scaling up, for example? Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. But you're okay with that? that? I'm okay with it, yeah, because there are other things that I can scale. So, for example, um, 
I mean, this is a relatively new development in my business, but mm-hmm. I've started doing a lot more writing mm. and I've just, uh, just published a book, for example. Right. Um, and I'm also working on various digital courses, video courses. Um, and those things as digital products are scalable. So yes. that's one way in which I can, uh, in which I can multiply myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other point that I would make is, is a general point, which is that scalability is not good in and of itself. Um, I think in the world of tech, people tend to worship scalability as if it was a, a god. Mm. And that makes sense when you are running a venture-backed business where it's all about scale and it's mm. all about making massive returns for your investors. Mm. Now, that's also fine, but that's not for everybody. Mm. And I think that one mistake that entrepreneurs make is that they think that that is the only path that's open to them if they work in tech. Um, so, yeah, I would encourage yeah. anybody who's thinking about going down that path to explore all of the options that are there. You can have a company and you can work in tech without building a, a unicorn. Mm. Um, or without even building something that's scalable. There are mm. many, many, many ways of running a business that, um, that don't involve uh, exponential growth. Um, and there are also ways to achieve uh, some sort of scalability, for example, by building digital products that mm-hmm. don't involve raising money. All right. Well, the message is sent. I- I have to say I agree. I agree with you. I've seen I've seen this um, trend with way too many startups. Like they're just running after the money and they forget mm. about everything else. I could feel the storyteller in you. You mentioned your book, and that was a that's a good transition. Uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> the, your book is titled "The Hustle Guide to the Pandemic." What is it about? The Hustle Guide to the Pandemic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, sure, yeah. So The Hustler's Guide to the Pandemic is a guide for business owners on how they can build a more resilient business Mm. in the era of COVID-19. There are three parts to the book. Mm -hmm. First part is about mindset. The second part is about money. And the third part is strategy and tactics okay yeah and uh i wrote it well it started out life as a blog post mm-hmm. and i just kept writing and writing and writing and writing because it struck me as very important to write this because firstly i could see there were a lot of people who were really struggling maybe even panicking thinking oh my god you know i'm gonna go out of business i'm gonna lose all my customers I, or maybe some of them can't couldn't even do any work at all yeah, but having pulled through the global financial crisis in two thousand seven, eight, nine, I thought, well, at the very least, I might be able to help 
some people of my experience. Um, so that was one motivation for, re for writing mm. it. Uh, and another motivation for writing it was that I wanted to codify my own thoughts about what I was going to do. Because obviously I've been affected by the pandemic as well. Mm -hmm. so, so I just kept writing and eventually I, I had a book in my hands and uh, I released it into the world. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, where, where can people find it? There's two ways that people can get it. Um, they can get it on Amazon just by searching for The Hustler's Guide to the Pandemic by Tom Hayton. It costs, I think in pounds, $1.99. So it's less than a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, I should emphasize the fact that I did not write this book to make money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, the most important thing to me is to just get it out there into the world. Um, and if someone doesn't want to spend $1.99 on it, they can get it for free by going to my website. Uh, so it's tomhayton.com forward slash pandemic and you can download it as a PDF or EPUB file. So you can read it on your, on your e-reader. Now, my last question, and this is one of my favorite questions. If you compile all your experience, all the challenges, the successes that you had, what would be one recommendation that you would give to other entrepreneurs out there? Uh -huh. This is an easy one. <laughs> okay. It's very, very, very important. For goodness sake, take care of your physical and mental health. Oh, yes, I love it. Yes. I honestly, I, I actually get quite upset about this because I see all of these brilliant people who have so much to offer to the world, mm. basically killing themselves for the sake of their business, mm. working 18 hour days, six or seven days a week, eating crap, uh, not exercising, putting themselves under enormous psychological pressure. You know the story. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to say that the tech industry, the culture of the tech industry does not help in that regard. Mm -hmm. Because hustle culture encourages people to do those sorts of things. Yes. Maybe not in black and white, but it's very implicit. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like people, people wear their hustle like a kind of badge, badge of honor. So they're proud of working 18 hour days. They're proud of staying up all night. They're proud of basically working themselves to the bone. Um, but there's a terrible price that they pay when they do that. Um, they pay a price in terms of their physical health. They pay a price in terms of their mental health. And I don't have all of the statistics to hand, but there are very high rates of, of alcohol abuse, mm. depression, uh, drug abuse, and suicide in, in tech. And that's terrible. And it's, it really does not need to be that way. Um, you can be a high performer in any area of life without pushing yourself into the red zone all the time. And it's worth actually making a, a, drawing a parallel here with 
um, with athletic performance. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really talked much about this, but I'm very, I'm very serious about my, about my sport. Uh, I compete in judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I'm also a, 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 a high-level runner. Mm-hmm. And so I take my training very seriously. I train every day, but I don't go crazy every day. Mm-hmm. Um, this morning I went out running and I kept my heart rate below one, two, one, two, five. Mm. So I could quite easily hold a conversation mm-hmm. this morning. Now, yeah. could it go faster? Yes, of course I could. Did I feel like going faster? Yeah, to be honest, I did because I like going fast. But if I do that every single time I train, then I'm going to get injured. Exactly. And the same thing applies, same thing applies to your work. Yes, of course, there are times when you need to really, really hustle hard and knuckle down and work extra, extra hard compared to what you normally do. Yeah. But if you do that all the time, you will really do serious permanent damage to yourself. Yeah. And I don't think any company is worth that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've, I've known people who were... In, in their 30s, having heart attacks, mm-hmm. um, people taking their own lives, you know, just terrible stuff. And mm-hmm. it's, it's pointless. I agree. So, I, often, I often tell my clients, remember, although you're the business owner, you know, or a business leader, you know, it's only a job. <laughs> there are things that are more important in life. Of, of course. And you've got to remind yourself why you're doing it. Yeah. And what is success? It's a good philosophical question. (laughs) But let's not answer it today. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom, for this uh, very inspiring uh, interview. You are very welcome, Laurent. Thanks for having me on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback about today's interview. So if you have any questions for my guest or myself, or if you'd like to be a guest yourself, send an email to contact at lauranotel.com or reach out on LinkedIn. See you next time. Bye-bye.